Good morning, good evening, depending on where you are in the, uh, in the world. Good afternoon for some of you. So today we're going to talk about stents. Um, they don't prevent heart attacks, neither do bypass grafts. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk about where we get this content in a minute. Most, you find most of this in the book. I think maybe we should have, read, should have titled the book uh, something like thinking about getting a stent or a stress test or a bypass graft. Uh, read this before you do. Uh, if you look at other, other content, we cover things like low-carb diet and coronary artery calcium progression. You know, that says previous topic, but it's, we've covered it before. We're going to cover it again in a much deeper way next week. Uh, you, you, there were some surprising findings there. There was a study that came out, and the author's interpretation was, mm, low-carb diets cause... Uh, cause heart attack and stroke risk. Huh. Very interesting. And it's, um, we get deeper into that and why that author said that and what we think about that next week. Uh, coronary angiogram headed down that slippery slope. Alzheimer's should be called type three diabetes and plenty of other content. We've got about a thousand videos out there. Again, most of these topics you'll find uh, in the book. In terms of getting access to our core uh, content, you can do it through a webinar if you're interested in actually talking with a doc, talking with other patients, finding out uh, where other people are in terms of insulin resistance, plaque, how to evaluate plaque, um, supplements, heart attack and stroke risk. Those are the things that primary care docs tend to not have the greatest handle on. I mean, it's been shown time and time again that um, your typical primary care doc, even a cardiologist who's, who's uh, trying to practice prevention within cardiology, really doesn't understand the basics of how to make a diagnosis of prediabetes or diabetes, let alone how to manage it. So that's if that's the key driver for heart attack and stroke, and most of us certainly think it is, then it's a very, very much a buyer beware environment to go out uh, into the uh, into medicine today and and risk your life and put your life in the hands of primary care docs. Now, I've made a living out of of hiring and managing and working with and being a primary care doc. Um, we do what we can. We do the very best we can, Doc, but docs are people too. And especially these days, as the science goes faster and faster. Meanwhile, uh, with the baby boomer generation, primary care docs are in greater and greater and greater need. Their docs are on a professional treadmill right now too. So they really struggle to keep up with the latest in science. And that's what this channel is about, helping you as the, uh, it's your body, you're the patient. If you don't know some of this stuff, mm, you can end up uh, in a place you don't want to be. So as I said, um, <clears throat> today's topic, as well as most of our topics are covered in detail. Sometimes the gory detail and sometimes the, the bone numbing detail of exactly what the statistics show. 
those are in the book. So, uh, and the book's right there available on uh, Amazon. Take a look. I had another patient yesterday say, yep, doc, I got the book and there's some eye-opening stuff there. Uh, so today we're going to talk about stents. They don't prevent a heart attack. Wait a minute. 90% of stents are put in to prevent a heart attack. Are you, am I saying, is this study saying that all of that surgery, all of that, uh, all those stents, all of that patient uh, emotional, the stuff we go, the patients go through to get a stent, all of those um, uh, coronary cath lab activities, all of that's wasted. Let's take a look and see what it says. And what about cabbage? In fact, when th this uh, this is going to be an analysis, uh, uh, a uh, reanalysis, and an update on the ischemia trials. Uh, up until the original ischemia trial, you had Courage, you had or Orbita, you had some other trials saying, nope, stents don't pre prevent heart attacks. So guess what the typical plumbing cardiologist mindset was and the patient's mindset. Patients, this is sort of like the old uh, problem with fat in arteries uh, causes this problem. So therefore, fat in your diet is going to cause the problem. Mm. Uh, maybe not so fast. Maybe that was a, a too easy an assumption. And yes, we see these arteries as pipes. So clear the pipes out. Uh, patients want to do that just like docs. Don't blame all of that on the docs, by the way. It's an easy assumption. But as it became clearer and clearer that stents don't prevent heart attacks, then the that easy assumption then adjusted. Well, it's got to be bypass grafts. Well, the ischemia trial came out and it included bypass grafts as well. And they said, hmm, they don't prevent heart attacks either. So let's go into the detail. This is the ischemia trial, coronary artery disease and ischemia severity. This is outcomes. This is a, an update and reanalysis of some components of the ischemia trial. Um, and uh, it was published this month, September of 2021. Patients with st stable coronary artery disease and uh, moderate or severe ischemia would benefit from revascularization. In other words, if you've got junk in your pipes, uh, if we go in and put a new vessel in there, a new pipe, then you're going to benefit. That was the assumption. For this study, they had 5,179 patients with moderate or severe ischemia. They were randomized to an initial invasive or conservative management. Invasive meant you go in there and surgically either uh, put a stent in that pipe, the existing pipe, or put in a new pipe. Uh, in other words, a bypass. Conservative management was not doing those procedures. CT angiogram was used to assess anatomic uh, eligibility. In other words, they used the CT angiogram and said, mm, okay, should we do, uh, are, are these people having enough uh, ischemia that we want to include them in the trial? Uh, it looked at extent and severity of the coronary artery disease using the modified Duke prognostic index, which we won't go, go into today. Ischemia severity was interpreted by independent core laboratories, nuclear echocardiography, magnetic resonance, MRI, exercise tolerance testing, 
So they did the same, you know, the regular stuff to say, okay, does this person have ischemia? Let's stop for just a second and say, wait a minute, we're using one of those technical words that uh, might not actually uh, mean something to everybody listening. Ischemia. What is ischemia? Ischemia is when you're not, it's, it's the condition of not getting enough blood flow. So you don't get enough oxygen. You don't, um, you don't remove enough uh, waste materials. And so obviously what we're talking about here is not getting enough blood flow to the arteries of the heart. And the article we're looking at, by the way, was published in, in the journal Circulation, which is a well-respected academic medical journal. So what were the results of comparing a randomized, randomized comparison, people that we've been saying by all standard criteria, you need a stent or you need a bypass. And what they actually did, this was a couple of really well-respected universities. We'll talk about who it was in just a minute. What they did was they said, okay, some people are going to get a stent or a bypass. Others are going to get not get a stent and bypass. They're going to talk to them about lifestyle. They're going to talk to them about medications. Um, and we'll see who does better. So moderate or severe ischemia was associated. Remember, uh, moderate or remember ischemia is that not enough blood, that condition of having not enough blood going to the muscle tissue of the heart. Moderate or severe ischemia was associated with increased mortality or death rate. So it's clearly, uh, we got that part right, it's a dangerous condition. Non-fatal MI or heart attack rates, MI stands for myocardial infarction, which again is just um, a, a physician did, did some of these, so he tends to, to speak medical ease, and I'll try to translate as we go through for you. Non-fatal heart attack rates increased with worsening ischemia severity. So again, that's underlining that, that medically, uh, doctors are getting that right. They are knowing when somebody's got increased risk for lack of blood flow to the heart tissue. Increasing coronary artery uh, disease severity uh, or increasing severity of ischemia was associated with uh, death and heart attack rates. In the most severe groups, uh, 659, the four-year death rate uh, was lower in the invasive strategy, but four-year all-cause mortality rate was similar. So there may have been one tiny signal that for those diehard stent and, and bypass guys, maybe it helps a little bit, at least in the very worst group. But does it really decrease all-cause mortality? Hmm. No, it doesn't. Uh, ischemia severity was not associated with increased risk after adjusted for cardio, uh, for ischemia, uh, for coronary artery disease. Uh, invasive management did not lower all-cause mortality at four years in any of those subgroups. So stable patients don't benefit from stents or by, bypass surgery. That was the interpretation. That's what the authors said. And that's what the New York Times. I mean, again, we're struggling through and trying to interpret this for you uh, out of a medical journal. Here's where the New York Times saw that same article. And their, their title was 
surgery for blocked arteries is often unwarranted. Researchers find. Uh, drug therapy alone may save lives. And what they left out, obviously, was the most important thing. The most important thing is not drug therapy. The most important thing is lifestyle changes. So this was a large international study led by Stanford and New York University. So again, both well-respected universities in this space. They found that invasive procedures are no better than medications and lifestyle advice in severe stable heart disease. Patients with angina did benefit from invasive procedures in this study. As we've seen in other studies like the Orbita trial, they didn't. So <clears throat> this gets again to this. Whenever I start talking about these stents, people will say, well, you're, you're not telling the truth because I know that it helped my angina. We'll get to that. I'm sure somebody will want to make that comment uh, later on. The study was designed to, this study, the ischemia trial, was designed to reflect current clinical practice in which patients with severe blockages in their arteries often undergo an angiogram and a bypass with stent or uh, bypass surgery. Now, these re results don't suggest patients should undergo procedures in order to prevent cardiac events, according to the authors. And I know we've already started getting some comments where that are saying, my doctor's recommending a stent. What should I do? Well, I'm, I'm reporting the news and I'll talk about the advice that I usually give in just a minute when we get into the Q&A section. Until now, there has been little scientific evidence to support whether intervention is more effective in preventing adverse heart events, more effective than simply treating with lifestyle and medications. And so why have we been doing so many stents and so many bypasses? Well, we thought it was the right thing to do, didn't we? We made an assumption. And when we actually start looking, that assumption turns out to be wrong. Again, I get back to that analogy of, um, of eating cholesterol in your diet. You see cholesterol in your arteries with plaque and you say, well, if it was cholesterol, then cholesterol in our diet must be causing this. And then you get Ansel Keys in the, what, seven, seven countries study. And was it six country study? And it's obviously not enough countries for those of you who know what I'm talking about. We make these assumptions. They impact the lives of tens, hundreds of millions of people. And then we actually decide to start digging into and find when we find the truth, it's sometimes not what we expected. Those who underwent an invasive procedure had roughly a 2% higher rate of heart events within the first year compared with those on medical therapy alone. And that was attributed to procedure risk. So in other words, uh, not only did it not help long-term, you also did have some procedural risks. Now, again, uh, we'll talk about, I have patients for whom this happens all the time. We'll talk about it a little bit later. It's hard to justify putting stents into patients who are stable and have no symptoms, for sure. The authors uh, recommend that all patients take medications to, proven to reduce risk of heart attack, to be physically active, to eat a healthy diet, and quit smoking. Yeah, that is clearly the case. And guess what? Another place where patients do need to take responsibility is 
such a large percentage percentage of patients want to say, I'm not going to get to the right nutrition. I can't. I've got food addiction and I can't change that. Or I've got a cigarette addiction and I can't change that. Now, there's a lot of people that do that. And those folks do need to take responsibility for what's going on. However, doctors tend to hide behind that as well and say, well, I can't ever get a patient to lose weight. I can't ever get a patient to quit smoking. My average patient has lost 10 to 30 pounds. And here's the thing. I can't really take uh, responsibility for that. I'm not going to take credit for it. But it's just a point that there are people out there that are losing tons of weight and getting healthy and doing the right thing. And they're saving their lives. Patients with angina of any severity will tend to have a greater improvement if they uh, have an invasive procedure. That's what we have assumed. And again, that's what this, um, uh, that part for those that have angina is still very much in uh, debate. There's a lot of mixed, uh, mixed findings in the science out there. So we can talk about ang- those of you who have angina and are thinking about a stent and you want to talk about that. We can talk about that in the QA as well. Although there was no absolute survival benefit, uh, there was no uh, survival benefit from invasive strat, uh, the invasive strategy, the procedures, the surgery. So again, I expect to get some haters just like with, uh, with many of our more um, uh, hot topics. So as I said, are you thinking about getting a stent or a bike pass? Watch this first. Read that New York Times article. Read the, uh, this is not my first video talking about this. Get my book, the book on prevention myths. Bart Robinson, good morning, Dr. Brewer. Beautiful day here in South Jersey. Um, Thank you, Bart. Good to hear from you. And I'm glad you are having a good day there. Many people think, well, He's, it's New Jersey, by the way. This is not the, the other Jersey in the UK. And uh, unless I'm mistaken, Bart, and you can clarify if I am. Many people think, oh, Jersey's just not pretty. They, you know, they see the, the, uh, the intro to, um, oh, what was that gangster movie with uh, James Gandolfino in it? Uh, the, the Sopranos. And they think, oh, man, that's ugly. No, it's not. The South Jersey area is absolutely beautiful. And there are other places. There's some beautiful horse country in in New Jersey as well. Bill H. Bill Hart. Good morning, Dr. Brewer. Bill Hart from Brentwood here. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. Uh, We're having a little tech challenge here, but I think we'll get past it. Evelyn Burley. The doctor said, I need three cents. Here we go. I eat my two tablespoons of flaxseed daily, no pain, but shortness of breath on exertion, not excretion. Well, maybe excretion too, but I think you meant exertion. What's my best option, please? Well, here's the thing. I can't, I'm a doctor and I do this for a living, but I can't, there there are some legal technical issues here. I, you know, the lawyers will be very clear, doc, you can't just, and, and I, and they're right. I can't just, Get that information and tell you what to do, Evelyn. I'd be happy to talk with you um, if you are my patient. And you can you can call uh, Michelle, 859-721-1414. That's 859-721-1414. And I think Gilbert will probably uh, pop that up on the screen in a few minutes. If There you go. Thank you, Gilbert. 
So it brings up a good point, though, Evelyn, and I can talk with you about when that comes up. It comes up often uh, in uh, patient populations doing what I do. You know, you if you've got a, a popular YouTube channel about this kind of information, you'll get people that come to you quite often. They, they say, mm, my doc's telling me I have, a, have to have a stent. I, I had a, a young... Um, Filipino a couple of years ago, relatively young in his forties. And, uh, doc saw him and said he needed to have a stent. We started talking with him and he ran a, uh, a restaurant and he was eating two to three bowls of rice per day. And he had significant borderline diabetes, clearly way beyond mild prediabetes. And, um, he said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have a procedure, especially this young. And I said, that's your choice. Um, the procedure itself, the stents, even bypass. Bypass is a much more serious procedure. Um, both of them are still relatively safe. I mean, they're not completely safe. They're not like uh, no, no procedure at all. You saw that number coming out of the study. We reported it. Um, but the real risk for a procedure, and this is what I always tell patients, the real risk of a procedure is not so much the procedure itself. It's the mistaken assumption that your plumbing problem has been fixed and therefore you have no problem because they're going to put a stent, they'll put a stent in or a bypass. A bypass will cover a few centimeters worth of, uh, of pipes. A stent will only cover a couple of centimeters worth of pipes. You got what? 60,000 miles of arteries. Now, how many do you have that really matter that can cause a heart attack or stroke? Not nearly that many. But stents and bypasses don't cover all that. This is a metabolic problem. It's not, there are some plumbing components to it for sure, but it's a metabolic problem. If you have a plaque that's getting ready to burst in one area of, an, of one artery, you're going to have plaques that are getting ready to burst in multiple places. So therefore, doing a local, a local solution on a pipe, that's why this doesn't work. That's why it's becoming clearer and clearer. And that's why the research is coming out, like these studies showing you got <clears> to <throat> change your lifestyle. Um, you got to stop that inflammatory process. Uh, E.T. himself, 10 seconds. Sharon Steele, good morning. Canada. Well, good. Good to hear from a Canadian. We've we got a lot of folks from Canada. In fact, if you look at our overall distribution, for close to a year now, um, less than half of our views have come from the U.S. Uh, a little bit over 50% comes from other parts of the world. Uh, the Philippines, Thailand. I've got patients in Thailand. I saw a patient in Thailand yesterday. Um, the Middle East, um, South America, UK, you name it. JM, stents and caths are the gravy train for the cardiologist. And I was having this discussion with one of those patients this week. And she was saying, how much of this is being driven by finances? Again, you go to the book. Um, and I don't know, Gilbert, if, you've, if, if you can show 
uh, the book up on there or not. It would be helpful. Yeah, there you go. It's called Prevention Myths. It's on Amazon. And that you, you can't get around it. Finance and money is one of the big drivers. There was um, a, an article in the uh, popular book that uh, came out from a very popular doc. He's a medical journalist. His name is Atul Gawande. He looked at uh, a uh, community in Texas and uh, described what was going on. And basically, the, the uh, picture just showed it all. They had a fellow standing here, but he was a cash machine. His arms and his uh, head was sticking out. He was a cash machine, and the doctors were basically just using patients to, to mint money. And that's the truth. You can't get around that. Um, if there weren't so many cardiologists, thoracic surgeons, uh, cardiology clinics, entire hospital systems, cardiovascular systems built on these extremely profitable activities, uh, it would have been far easier to drop the preventive stents, preventive bypass uh, grafts long, long ago, because this, this is not incredibly new information. This started coming out five, 10 years ago, but it's going to, it's going to require a lot more um, banging before the change happens. A lot more push. Martha Wright, we enjoyed our visit at uh, Jubilee Primary Care. Thank you very much, Martha. Uh, sorry, I missed you too. So Martha's talking about Jubilee Primary Care. It's uh, it's our program down in uh, Lower Alabama, the other LA, um, Mobile, Baldwin County. Uh, Baldwin's one of the biggest counties in um, uh, east of the Mississippi. It's a uh, it's a beautiful area. It used to be mostly pecan groves, but now. It's very much a retirement area. There's, you may remember it by Gulf Shores, the beautiful beach down in that area, right next to Pensacola. And what we're doing is uh, Medicare Advantage. Uh, we are, um, it's a great way for people that don't own an airplane, aren't that, that level of, of wealthy, to be able to get very deep, very comprehensive, a concierge type of uh, medical care. Raymond Rogers, a friend who is a vegetarian is getting ready to have six stents, one a month. Mm. Yeah, that's bringing up the whole, the whole argument about vegetarian versus uh, plant-based. You know, here's the thing. As I say over and over, multiple times, I'm not quite so worried about the source of the, uh, the calories and the source of the macronutrients. Um, I used to be more plant-based and I'm, I don't worry about plant-based anymore. And I get, get a lot, eat a lot of animal products, dairy and, um, other things. I tend to lean pescatarian still. Uh, it, but here's the issue. There's so much debate around this thing. Well, let me just finish my perspective on nutrition. There are two things about nutrition and they both lead uh, one is a short-term component, one's a long-term component. You don't want your blood sugar 
or your insulin going high and staying high on a regular basis. Two things will drive that. One, day-to-day carbs. The other one is the amount of body fat that you have. So anything that has you overweight, anything that has you eating a whole lot of carbs on a regular basis when you can't digest them is a problem. That's my perspective. Now, it's very interesting. I had a patient call me. I saw a patient a couple of weeks ago. He was very upset. He um, he was getting a CIMT from, uh, from Todd's group uh, for his visit for me. And the doctor, this was in uh, Florida, South Florida. And the doctor where this was being done came in and said, I see all of Brewer's patients when he comes in here. We did not know that. But then he said, um, and by the way, I know Brewer puts, puts everybody on a high fat keto diet. The patient was on a keto diet uh, by his own choice. And yes, this patient had di- diabetes. And it's like, he got very upset and felt like um, he, he calmed down as we continued to talk. And he said, I have to tell you, 80% of what you and this Dr. M talked, uh, said, correlated. But the stuff about the diet, uh, the doc has his own health problem, very, very obvious from, uh, from his obvious BMI. And he's telling me that I should not uh, be eating low carbs. And it's just very frustrating. So I called Todd. Todd would not believe that a doctor would do that. Then I found some notes and yeah, the doctor was doing that. So one thing I do want to do is just put some clarification out there. Um, As we, I see patients on a telemedicine perspective, uh, Todd agrees to, uh, to get CIMTs from uh, places near you, near the patients. And sometimes that's going to result in a doctor doing what this doctor did. I've placed multiple calls. I've not gotten return call. So couldn't get through to him. And I'm not entirely surprised about that. But um, again, I, I think we need to keep some of the debates out of the way we, we practice. Some of them, I think, this debate about nutrition, uh, keto versus um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Carnivore versus animal versus you name it. We can de- we can debate those until, as my grandma used to say, the cows come home or the chickens come home to roost. But let's think about it. If you, uh, the real issue here is if you're putting yourself in an inflammatory state. I haven't met a doctor yet who said, yeah, it's healthy to have your blood sugar 180 or 200 hour after hour every day of the week. I haven't met a doctor who who's done that. Now I've met plenty of doctors who did not know that was going on with their patient. And that's one of the key things that we find. So you got me into that uh, whole debate about vegetarian, plant-based, vegetarian, vegan. So the other thing I'll say about those is I've demonstrated myself. You can cut the carbs, whether you're on plant-based, uh, animal-based, keto, vegan. I mean, you can get plenty of, um, plenty of calories without plenty of carbs, uh, even on a vegan diet. You just have to, to get used to using some of the, 
you know, healthy oils like avocado and uh, olive oil. Fig Newton, what a name. Sugar is a killer. And it's interesting that, a, that you'd have a name like Fig Newton. I used to love Fig Newtons before I quit eating sugar, by the way. E.T. himself, my, my mother or my grandmother actually had a fig tree in her backyard. This was in South Carolina. Uh, I'll move on. Uh, E.T. himself, two to three summers ago, a British medical research group spent a few years reviewing peer-reviewed medical journals and a couple of years digging into their validity. Result, 50% were deemed fake. You know, um, there's a guy named John Wianidis at Stanford who would say it's more than 50%. In, uh, in that uh, uh, study that we did, or, or that we're going to be looking at next week, that says car low-carb diets cause heart attack and stroke risk. Basically, they're talking about it makes you calcify your, your, uh, your plaque. And they don't understand that calcified plaque is stable, soft plaque is not. But we're going to talk about a thing called um, participation bias or recruitment bias. In other words, let me give you another example of classic uh, participation or recruitment bias. Have I told you the number of, of um, studies that have shown the, the, the guys did the study and then their interpretation was, we think metformin causes diabetes. And it's like, what? How, metformin is given to treat diabetes. And that's what, now just think about it. Um, and, and this is a classic uh, Ioannidis uh, uh, type of concept, participation bias. So you do this, what we call an environmental study. You don't watch people in terms of you see them now, you see them 10 years from now, you see them when they were uh, had their diagnosis of diabetes, you see when they were put on metformin. So you don't know any of that. All you do is you get 10,000 people and you look to see which ones have a diagnosis of diabetes and which ones have, a, have are taking metformin. And guess what you're going to find? You're going to find that most of the people taking uh, metformin have diabetes. So can you believe it? There are plenty of studies out there. I reported on a couple of them just a couple of years ago. Uh, one of them was at a, a conference uh, in Asia where they were saying, we reviewed all of this country's uh, information and we think metformin causes diabetes. Ah, so there you go. And so why do I keep talking about science? Well, that's one of the reasons I do talk about science is because it is so easy to, uh, to get bumfuzzled, as you can tell. I mean, uh, even the guys that do the studies are quite often really ready to jump to the wrong conclusions. E.T. himself... And 80% likely the same. Um, I, I, again, I think another comment about uh, garbage in, garbage out in terms of assumptions and epidemiology of large studies. Why no subtitles? Don't, I don't understand that question. Getting my annual, Bart's saying, getting my annual uh, ultrasound EKG today. So that's a, a 
ultrasound stress test to monitor the aortic aneurysm risk? Can that provide me with any uh, progression of a 490 calcium score six years ago? Thank you. It's not really going to translate between calcium scores and that. But what you can do is if you've got uh, two different time periods of calcium score, two different time periods of this, they will likely correlate somewhat. Or they're supposed to. And I can tell you from experience, they will uh, most of the time. Amir from Germany. Hi. Uh, Good to see you, Amir. Thanks for joining us. Steve Carter, going over my CT angiogram today with my doc. Good luck. I hope it comes out uh, to your satisfaction. Fort Worth, West Side. Unfortunately, I can't stay for the whole thing. Thanks for a great video as usual, Ford. Thank you for your comment. Thank you for your interest. And it'll be there uh, when you get back. Just uh, pull it up and you can take a look. Steve Carter, he's recommending a cardio and probably heart cath. Mm. I don't know what you mean by a cardio but I certainly know what you mean by a heart cath and good luck as you go into that decision-making process, Steve. Jane Ann, Effiant and Xarelto together almost killed my mom. We were at the ER once a month for bleeds. Yep. I mean, that's the problem with, uh, with the anticoagulants, uh, the blood thinners. William Powell. Good morning, Dr. Brewer. Thank you for all you do. What about heart valve problems? I have lost 135 pounds. HDL is 58. Triglycerides 50. LDL 199 and A1C 4.8. I'm not sure what you mean. What about heart valve problems? I've got plenty of people with some heart valve problems, mitral valve, aortic valve, you name it. I will just make a couple of comments about those numbers that you shared. Number one, losing 135 pounds is a big deal. You have saved yourself decades, probably decades of uh, life span, and even more so, maybe even more importantly to most of us, decades of avoiding uh, uh, being paralyzed you know, from strokes or bedridden from uh, heart failure. So congratulations to you. This is a permanent thing, though. You got to keep it up. Uh, It's very clear. It seems to be pretty clear that you're cutting your carbs as well. Now, how would I know that? Your triglyceride over HDL ratio is less than one. That's a really good number. That's a great target for those of uh, of us that are listening, wondering about what are some basic things that I can do to evaluate my heart attack and stroke risk. It's a, it's a number that has to do with um, diabetes. So if you've got a very diabetes, uh, pre-diabetes, carb-driven metabolism, a couple of things will happen. The large, fluffy HDLs, the ones that really do us a lot of good, instead of carrying cholesterol, they start carrying fatty acids. And guess what? The large, fluffy LDLs, uh, the ones that are healthy, Uh, start carrying fatty acids instead of cholesterol as well. When these large fluffy HDLs and LDLs uh, that are carrying uh, fatty acids instead of cholesterol, when those pass through the liver, the liver metabolizes those fatty acids, burns it up. And when it does, it burns up the healthy HDL and the healthy LDL. So that's one of the reasons why you get a... um, a problem with the triglyceride over HDL ratio. 
the numerator, I mean, the denominator, HDL, drops because those large, fluffy, the really healthy uh, HDL particles uh, get chewed up by the liver. What about the triglycerides? Well, you know, insulin in and of itself uh, has a couple of impacts. It helps with memory. It helps with um, getting sugar out of the blood and into uh, the cells. And guess what? It also stops fat burning. So if you've got too much insulin cranking around routinely in your bloodstream, it's going to be very hard for you to burn those triglycerides. So your triglyceride level is going to keep creeping up. So that's what the uh, triglyceride over HDL uh, ratio is all about. Bart Robinson, actually absolutely correct about South Jersey being beautiful. Yes. Thank you so much, Bart. Appreciate that. Steve Carter, I've lost 25 pounds walking two and a half to three miles at three miles per hour a day. You cannot uh, underestimate the value of just that base of aerobic activities. Unfortunately, so many of us baby boomers grew up in a time when exercise was just being uh, recognized. And they all, they, all they ever talked about was aerobics. They said, you really don't need any resistance training. You don't need, need any high intensity interval training. That was wrong. We do need this basal, this base of aerobic activity, and it doesn't have to be jogging. It doesn't have to be running. Walking is great, uh, and it really helps with body fat. And body fat is a big challenge for uh, for middle aged people and older. A big challenge in terms of health. It we used to think it was an inert energy storage tissue. It's not. It actually is a is an endocrine tissue which causes insulin resistance, diabetes, prediabetes, heart attack, and stroke risk. So um, some things that we've found out past decade or so are resistance training is very important. Muscle mass is very important. High-intensity interval training, all of those are very important as well. So, Steve, that's great. I'm glad to hear what you're accomplishing. I Usually... When I tell some a patient, you're doing great, you've done some really good work, they say, that's great. Thank you so much for letting me know. But I'm not paying you to tell me I did great. I'm paying you to tell me what I can do next. What, what you can do to understand and, uh, and create the impact from uh, resistance training, uh, growing that muscle mass, muscle strength, and high-intensity interval training. We can talk, if somebody has a question about it, we can talk a little bit later about why that helps. William Powell, Chattanooga, Tennessee, low carb, high fat. Thank you very much, William. Good to hear from you. And thanks for telling us where you're from. John Brown, take your dang vitamin D3, please. Thank you, John. Yes. Um, you know, it's funny. People like, as some people like myself have been talking about vitamin D3 for a long time. Now you're getting a lot of other folks uh, jumping on board. And I'm glad to see it. You know, I wish we'd get a lot more folks jumping on board this recognition of uh, early insulin resistance because it's still killing so many people. I'm air 4.99. Is that, I don't know. Is that pounds? Is that euro? That's euros, I think. Thank you so much, I'm air. I, we appreciate that. Math faster. Uh, and by the way, these, uh, these things make a big difference. Uh, we've got teams in, um, in the Philippines. We've got teams in Mexico. 
neither of those economies are similar to the U.S. economy or the German ec economy, uh, Mayor. And um, every little bit helps uh, in helping us get this message out to, again, a global reach for helping people in uh, all parts of the world understand their risk for heart attack and stroke and how to recognize it and how to prevent it. Math faster. What about the potential for sudden cardiac arrest if you're asymptomatic but have coronary arteries that are 70% or more blocked and do nothing? So, um, again, your, your um, assumption that you've got a lot of risk there is based on the assumption of simple plumbing. And I mean, that's what we keep talking about. If the plumbing were the real issue, then why would the Orbiter trial and the uh, Courage trial, why would uh, the, the ischemia trials and the ischemia reanalysis that we just reported to, why don't all of them say, yeah, if you got a, if you've got, uh, a plaque, you need to put a stent in it. That's what everybody's been assuming. That's what they're doing. That's what has been done innumerable times. If that were the case, why is this research finding that it doesn't work? Adam Schmitz, Will Davis, Dr. Dave talks a lot about corrupt, how corrupt most cardiologists are. Uh, I've seen some of Will Davis's stuff. I, um, the stuff that I heard was was very good. He was talking about what's been done to wheat to really increase its um, ability to provide a lot of calories and turn around and create a lot of risk. And I haven't seen his stuff on cardiologists, but uh, it's real. It's there. It's reality. Uh, Ritesh Davda. Sir, I have triple vessel disease with hypertension, diabetes, and a very, very high calcium score. Well, Ritesh, I've got tons and tons of patients. Uh, probably, probably at least 50% of my patients have a very, very similar, uh, similar thing. And part of the reason for it is uh, once you start getting insulin resistant, and most of us get insulin resistance, uh, in our, as we age, some in our 50s, some in our 40s, most of us by the time we're age 60. And insulin resistance causes inflammation. Inflammation causes plaque. Plaque causes, uh, as your body continues to stabilize it, that causes calcium, uh, calcification of the artery. And guess what? Uh, those, we call it AGE, advanced glycation end products. It's where high glucose for too long starts binding to proteins. Guess what the most common and well-known AGE, advanced glycation end product is? Hemoglobin A1C. Hemoglobin's a protein. It, when it binds to uh, permanently to glucose, that's how we find out. Uh, I mean, that's how, what the whole hemoglobin A1C test is based on, or the A1C. It's an advanced glycation end product. Why did I bring up advanced glycation end product? Did I go down a uh, another bunny hole. Well, you could say that, but I'm getting back to your point. You've got hypertension. Uh, a, a, we don't know. It could be the vast majority of high blood pressure caused by clogging of the, um, uh, the filter membranes, the filter mechanisms of the glomeruli. 
Each of our kidneys has a million glomeruli, a, a million filters. And if your filter gets clogged, what does the kidney do? It says increase the blood pressure so we can get that uh, fluid pushed through. So the reason I'm bringing all of that up, Ritesh, is that it's this common chronic disease uh, mechanism. We've wondered this. We've known this for a while. When you start seeing one of the chronic diseases, you usually start seeing the other ones. And it's because they're, they're, they basically have a lot of commonality in their mechanism. So thank you for raising that. Let me finish on, your, uh, on the rest of your comment. I am on aggressive medical management. My stress test is negative and 20 uh, echo normal. But I still have angina. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yep. And uh, right now, I think that, so I think that begs the question, is a stent or bypass graft appropriate for someone with angina? And as, as we showed, we talked about, that's really, it's hard to, to say right now. Uh, you clearly will be able to find a whole bunch of docs that will do stents for you. Will those stents actually do away with your angina? Some of them clearly appear to do that. Um, others, maybe not so much. Here's the one thing that is clear that no, I don't think, well, I started to say, I don't think anybody will argue about None of the medical scientists these days are really arguing that you need to do a stent uh, if you have no symptoms at all. Where the argument is at this point is exactly where you are, is uh, if you have symptoms. Sky 3353, good morning, doctor. Thank you for all you do. Watch you every day. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Two stents, four heart attacks, still here. Good for you. Thank you so much. Supernova, 1976. Hi from Finland. Well, I don't remember many, if any, Finlandians. Thank you so much for letting us know that. I'm a 45-year-old male. Uh, been having shortness of breath and tightness in the middle of my chest. Been to a cardiologist. He did his, an ultrasound and said it was all clear. Um, have you thought about getting an IMT? It's a thing where you look at Get my book. If you get the book, uh, we talk about, uh, you know, ultrasound. Um, I guess part of the question is, was this an echo stress test or was this just an art, uh, uh, ultrasound of the arteries? If it was just an ultrasound, there's one other thing that you can do. It's called an IMT. Ultrasound just looks, it's a flow study like a, uh, like a stress test. And if you don't know what I mean by flow study, again, get the book that helps you understand. Uh, a stress test is a flow study, which means it looks to see if there was a decrease in flow to the heart. That's how a stress test works. And it's based on the, um, the plumbing assumption. Here's the problem with the plumbing assumption. You have to have over 50% impact on the flow in your heart to have a positive stress test. Well, two-thirds of heart attacks occur with less than, an less than a 50% impact on flow. So that's why stress tests don't predict heart attacks. Um, so when I say uh, flow study, if you got just, excuse me, just a, a simple ultrasound of the, of the carotids, what they're looking at is flow with that ultrasound. 
what you need is a, um, a what's called a duplex. It looks not only at the flow, but it also looks at the thickness of the plaque itself. Or a calcium score or a CT angiogram. All of those are helpful. All of those are really better than a stress test, than the usual, the, the Framingham followed by the stress test, followed by the cardiac cath. And once you get into the cath lab, they've put you to sleep and they've probably already got you signed up for a stint. Uh, Supernova 1970. However, he thinks there's some blockage and booked me in for an angiogram and immediately put me on rosuvastatin is that of my combo, 10 milligrams each to reduce my cholesterol. Um, you're going down that path. I would suggest you get my, that book, uh, read up on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just uh, predicted what, what they usually do. And then we get to your next statement and he did what they usually do. Um, I can't be your, I mean, I can be your doctor. If you call Michelle in the U S I can, I can help you out and look at some of the details. One thing I can say, no matter what is um, when people are looking for a risk factor for heart attack and stroke, most doctors would just want to look at cholesterol. I understand that. Uh, it's not that cholesterol doesn't matter, but it's way over uh, overblown as a risk factor. Get a craft insulin survey, a craft insulin survey. Um, take a look at that. It's, it's not funny. It's tragic. Even I, I will get people that will even get one of these um, and they think it's fine. They come in and, and I interpret it for them and they clearly have tons of risk from insulin resistance. So please uh, go ahead and start assessing your uh, your risk for prediabetes, diabetes, because that's a much more common problem, much more common cause of heart attack and stroke than cholesterol. Supernova 1976, LDL 5.2, HDL 0.87, and triglycerides 2.2. He said they'll put out a, put in a stent if needed. What shocked me is he wants to reduce my LDL to one. Um, yeah, it shocks me too, but uh, he's the, he's your advisor and he's, uh, you know, I, ha I have to watch what I say and how I say it, but um, you're the executive. It's your body. You need to make a choice on, uh, on what you do. And any, I've seen, you know, you bring up a great point. I've got three patients right now. One, uh, got carried into an ICU in England and treated for a while, um, had a bypass graph and uh, heart attack. And uh, I had another one here in Chicago. Very, very similar situation. Both of them had not, they came to me, nobody had ever, you know, I asked them about diabetes, prediabetes. Nope, nope, I'm good. They checked me multiple times when I was in the hospital. Both of them had full-blown diabetes. And their doc was diddling around with stents and, um, and cholesterol. So please be careful about that. Again, this is, 
you can say this is some crazy internet doc going off on a tangent. It's not, I'm not a crazy internet doc. Look up. I mean, other docs at Hopkins originally, but now other major institutions are saying the same thing. They've done the research. They, they're very clear. Your typical primary care doc, internist, family practitioner, cardiologist does not know how to diagnose prediabetes and they don't know how to treat it. And yet it's really clear that causes heart attack and stroke risk. John Brown, please ask your PCP to check your D25 level, your uh, vitamin D level. Winter is coming. Well, you know what? Uh, Delta has been coming, too. And um, we've had two years of, of, um, of a pandemic virus where, you know, because of that pandemic and research associated with vitamin D levels, uh, finally, uh, a lot of the rest of the medical community, the medical research community, the medical science community is finally acknowledging, yeah, we need to get higher average uh, vitamin D3 levels. Thank you for bringing that up, John. Steve Mitchum, Nick Saragusa, here's your chance. Nick Saragusa, not sure I got that. Bart Robinson, great suggestion, John. Uh, supernova. I'm on 5,000 IUs daily and I've been in the sun all summer. Good for you. Uh, you know, that's not real. I, I, I do recommend people start with 5,000 international units daily, but that's not really the question. The question is, what is your serum level? Because I'll see some people that take 10, I, I've got some people taking 10,000 and even 15 that still struggle with levels 40 and below. Some families just have a, um, and that one, the ones at 15, it tends to be a familial issue, a genetic issue. Um, body fat also tends to decrease appropriate absorption and distribution of vitamin D3 levels. So there's a lot of things. Uh, race uh, decreases it. Tons and tons. Uh, uh, Dark-skinned people don't absorb uh, the sun very well for vitamin D3 purposes. There's just a whole bunch of things. You got to get tested. It's expensive, but just get the test. Vape King, LOL. Wow. Will this be posted later for review? Yes, Sky 3353. It, it will go up automatically. And we'll take some different uh, content sections out of that and make some shorts too, because a lot of people just don't have want to take the time to go through an hour worth of, uh, of this kind of evaluation, this kind of discussion. Jeannie Rick Smith. Hey, I came in late question. Particle tests of any value for LDL measures. Great question. Particle tests can get a little bit confusing, but here's one thing. Um, I agree with the, with a lot of the, uh, the leading edge guys that say, uh, when I don't entirely agree, but, but let me clarify the point. A lot of lead, leading edge uh, lipidologists will say the um, fractionation is far more important than the actual LDL or the, the um, lipid panel. Now, I would say, mm, yes, it's very important. I wouldn't say that it's more important. It's not so much that LDL is the issue, which most docs focus on. With the standard lipid panel, what I'm looking for is triglyceride over HDL. We had a commenter uh, list his or her numbers a few minutes ago, and I went through 
the details of triglyceride over HDL and why that's so important. It's not telling you quite so much about lipids. It's telling you about the bigger risk, and that is insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes. But here's the other thing. Uh, yes, fractionation is very important. And some labs will want to give you uh, just particles. Uh, it's better to get a, a complete fractionation. Quest used to give me a great panel. I mean, a great graph showing the exact uh, population curves for HDL and LDL. And recently, past three months, I haven't seen any. It's like, I don't know if they're getting cheaper or if docs don't know how to read it and they're just not using it. But here's, here, here's what's important about it. You remember I said, uh, I, we talked about if you're in a carb-driven metabolism, your, lar your healthy HDL and your healthy LDL, the large fluffier ones tend to, to replace the cholesterol with fatty acids. And when they do that, your liver chews those up. You can literally see that on these fractionation graphs. That's what's so important about this. Bart Robinson, sorry, I'm not getting a treadmill test. I'm getting the ultrasound with the gel pads on my chest. Oh, okay. Very good. Thanks for clarifying that, Barb. Good, uh, Bart, good luck. You know the one where laying down on my side. Yep. Yeah. Jonathan Hall, a, another super chat. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I appreciate that. And again, that, uh, these kind of contributions help us get that message out there. Um, most of the channel I support with uh, seeing patients and I've, and I've supported with my uh, retirement funds. Um, good morning, Dr. B. Aside from glucose, can other values on the comprehensive metabolic panel uh, be directly affected by lifestyle and diet. Yes, albumin, for example, can, um, can be a tip-off, although it's not confirmative, but it can be a tip-off of protein calorie deficiency. If you, start, if you see a problem with uh, albumin, especially in somebody that's losing weight, uh, what we'd want to get is a thing called pre-albumin. Uh, but uh, the metabolic panel is a good screen for that. You also see things like... Um, um, BUN and creatinine. That gives you a little bit of information about um, uh, kidney function. You uh, will see creatinine levels, which gives you a lot of information about kidney function. And kidney function is uh, critical. Now, um, what about lifestyle? Yes, uh, lifestyle does impact kidney function. Um, for those uh, folks that are taking statins or that have uh, liver problems, uh, yes, you'll see some information on the uh, metabolic panel having to do with what we call our liver enzymes. So, yes, they, they help quite a bit. They're not the definitive for, it's not like a life, lifestyle lie detector. Um, there's some other studies that we use to do that. Uh, Bart Robinson, aortic root dilatation. Yeah, that's what that ultrasound's about. And that's uh, a, a, a slight, it's a significantly different issue uh, compared to, uh, to what we were talking about earlier. Vape King, do you think Lipitor is actually beneficial to someone with a 269 calcium CT score, but no high cholesterol, high blood pressure, or diabetes? Not really. So here's the thing with... Uh, uh, Lipitor's, you know, and we'll get demonetized because we talked about this, but 
that happens. I mean, it's uh, clearly worth getting this information out there. Lipitor is by far the most common statin. And statins have been blockbuster drugs. They've made tons and tons of money. They tend to make that money because they're focused on LDL and because your doctors are focused on LDL. And that's not really, as we said, that's not nearly, um, in most cases, it's not as important as diabetes and prediabetes. Now, in fact, I tend, when I'm giving statins, I usually give low dose and I give it for uh, inflammation, which is a totally different issue from LDL level. Now, here's some things to, a couple of things to remember about Lipitor. Uh, Lipitor will lower your, your LDL levels for sure but it doesn't really decrease cardiovascular inflammation. And especially if you're a female or if you have insulin resistance, well, females are half the population. And those of us who have heart attack and stroke risk because of insulin resistance are by far more than, more than half. So I don't use, uh, I, I think I have maybe two patients my whole life on Lipitor. For that reason, I use other, when I need to use a statin, I don't use Lipitor. Uh, Raymond Rogers, your view on Repatha. Um, Repatha is very significant. Um, it's one of the new, it's the PCSK9 inhibitors. It's a um, uh, PCSK9. It, it's a very interesting. I could go on and on and on about this, uh, but I, I won't. I'll just... Uh, do a short uh, discussion of, P of uh, these. That first of all, they were discovered in a totally different way than most drugs have been discovered up until now. Most drugs that are discovered are discovered um, because they happen to be, you know, rapamycin, for example, was discovered by people taking sam samples. The sample was on Rapa Nui, uh, Easter Island, or out in the Easter Islands. And it was... Uh, found to be something that was um, actually, um, it, it, it's used a lot with uh, cancer drugs, anti-cancer drugs. Uh, it's used on stent coatings. It's been a, used a lot. And there's a black market use for uh, rapamycin uh, to try for longevity, to, uh, uh, to increase autophagy. The PCSK9s, however, were discovered in a totally new way. What they did was they went out and found people that had very low LDL levels. And they did genetic analyses on these people. And they said, oh, they found this girl who's a teenager, uh, a, um, a cheerleader in the state of Texas, had very low LDL. And they started analyzing her, uh, her genetics. And they came up with a drug that matched those genetics. PCSK9 inhibitors. So <clears throat> the PCSK9 inhibitors are a biological drug and they do really decrease LDL. I mean, you'll get uh, people 150, 180, and they get down to 20, 25, 30. Is that good? Well, that's, uh, that's debatable, clearly debatable. But <clears throat> uh, here's LDL does matter. It isn't as important as cardiovascular inflammation, but it does matter. And in some cases, when you have somebody with what we call FH, familial hypercholesterolemia, these are people with LDL levels that are 180 and above usually. Um, 
with some of those people, just that high a level of LDL can cause inflammation. So with those folks, you really do want to impact their LDL. And Repath is a great drug for that. So uh, Raymond, I hope, uh, I hope you, I hope that was helpful. I would say one other thing, uh, you know, just every, every time a, a new hammer becomes available, uh, doctors start seeing nails. And so now I'm even seeing a lot of docs, cardiologists using Repatha with, um, with relatively low LDLs just to try to hammer that down. And it's, I don't agree with that. So Amir Algayer, thank you very much for the helpful information. Thank you, Amir. I appreciate your interest. We appreciate the contribution this morning and uh, hope you have a good day. Raymond Rogers, your view on Repatha. Well, we just did that. Daniel Christopher, greetings from London, Dr. Brewer. Thank you so much, Daniel. I've had a few patients in London and um, been there a couple of times. Would love to go back. Supernova, ultrasound of the heart only. Thank you, Supernova. Very familiar with the methods and fully agree with you. Thank you. However, my doctor doesn't understand. Yep, I get it. Uh, that's what creates a passion for me. Um, Bambi Grades, good, good morning. Good to hear from you, Bambi. Been, have you been out doing some um, Olympic lifts, deadlifts, things like that recently? Uh, Supernova, I'll call you. Thank you, Supernova. I uh, look forward to it. Peter Grant, uh, can a stent improve heart failure caused by AFib? Um, <clears throat> I have seen some stents uh, that did have some improvement, whether, it, uh, but they weren't due to this. They were due to uh, certain types of ischemia not due to AFib itself. So AFib is a atrial fibrillation. It is by far the most common uh, dysrhythmia uh, of the heart. It, it becomes more, uh, far more prevalent as you reach age 55, 60, and especially if you have insulin resistance. And there are those of us like myself who have some genetic predisposition um, it's uh, called, what is it, 4, 4Q29? Um, it's a gene which, you see the, the muscle tissue of our heart can um, evolve into uh, conduction tissue. When that happens too much, too often, you get multiple different pathways for conduction. If you get that and it's not entirely organized, it can start going in circles, the, path, the conduction of the heart. And that's by far the most common problem that, that happens causing atrial fib. Mezzanine, still having joint pain issues in my hands and thumbs with mild numbness. Again, with recivastatin, five milligrams, three times per week. What percentage of patients ex experience these effects at this dose? Mm, 2%, 1%, not very high. Also, the magnesium connection. Yep, um, one thing that they have found is they do um, actual, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, placebo trials uh, with this. They find that a lot of symptoms that people attribute to statins were actually due to something else. Um, and that's just the reality. I, I, I don't ignore patients when they have uh, side effects. 
especially when they're associated by timing with uh, with statins. There's clearly some issues there. And the worst thing you can do is is uh, not take a patient's uh, concerns uh, seriously. Um, as you mentioned, magnesium is a uh, is very important and uh, helps a lot with uh, uh, with several components of this, with um, uh, nervousness associated with it, with uh, uh, joint pains, and especially with um, cramps. Blue Hawaii, 1706, can you advise us about collateral circulation? Collateral just means um, it's circulation that goes around the, uh, the blockage. And that is a critical piece. Uh, it's very active. It happens and it's saved innumerable people. Um, not sure what else to tell you about that, uh, Blue Hawaii. How much uh, D3 per 20 pounds of in extra body fat is generally required? I haven't seen it in that kind of formula. It, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, Atheist Pinar, greetings from Netherlands. Love, Dr. Brewer. Oh, uh, Thank you, Panar. Um, I'm in Texas in my Quest lab, and I'm not an atheist, by the way. Uh, that's not what this channel's about. Kyle Walker, I'm, I'm in Texas, and my Quest lab does not recognize the Kraft Insulin Survey. Any suggestions? Yep. Um, call Michelle. She can help you get set up for what we call an OGTT with insulin response. And that's exactly what... Um, it's basically a craft insulin survey, but it's a little bit different. And yes, call Michelle at 859-721-1414 and she can get you set up, Kyle. Thank you. It's a great question because you see that a lot. Cheek Tauga, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Cheek, for your information. Pinar, please read the Dr. Coimbra vitamin D protocol. Uh, please don't enter, <laughs> advertise for, a, well, I'll leave that alone. Blue Hawaii, a natural heart bypass is having collateral circulation. Yes, it is. And uh, what you want to do there, Blue Hawaii, is uh, remain stable, decrease your cardiovascular inflammation, give your heart time, uh, do the proper exercise on a regular basis, all the things that lifestyle tells you about. And that's what increases your uh, natural heart bypass, that collateral circulation. Thank you for sticking with that. Uh, Steve Carter, super sticker for $9.99. Thank you so much, Steve. I do appreciate it. Brendan Lenane, surely the antiplatelet medications cannot be healthy. Many cannot tolerate aspirin. I found a toothpaste containing K2, MK4. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of that, Brendan. Really removed uh, plaque. You know, it's interesting we use the same word when, whether we're talking about plaque in the arteries or plaque on the teeth. And guess what? Plaque on the teeth is very much related to development of plaque in the arteries. Is it useful to take, take K2 after having a stent? See, here's what I think actually happens with K2, Brendan. I think it helps improve the root cause of all this, which is not calcium. The root cause being insulin resistance. In fact, I've actually seen a... Um, after digging around for this for months, I actually found a, a study of a randomized clinical trial, which did get some improvement in insulin resistance with people from taking K2. 
ET himself, is calcium to magnesium ratio up to 1.1 as important as... No, I, would, I, I don't... You hear a lot of stuff about calcium to uh, magnesium ratios, zinc ratios. I think it's just more appropriate to remember that um, magnesium, we're all deficient in magnesium, even, even groups as conservative as the federal government, the FDA, the CDC will acknowledge that most of us are, are deficient in magnesium. Just remember that and uh, supplement, supplement with it. Um, what's the name of that toothpaste? That's a good question. Uh, Mancusa, I have type 1 diabetes, recently had a triple bypass uh, and put on metoprolol, uh, Plavix, and low-dose aspirin. How long should a patient continue taking the two prescriptions? That is a big debate. And you see some, uh, like many debates, you see uh, on both side, a lot of argument on both sides of the issue. It tends to come down to between 6 and 18 months. Uh, you'll, you don't see nearly as many folks keeping them on this dual antiplatelet therapy or, or uh, triple blood thinner type of therapy uh, on a regular basis, uh, bringing them off early. What they tend to do, unless they're having problems, if they're not having problems, they tend to keep them on uh, longer. Um, but right now, your, your, your cardiologists or anyone else's is Guess is as good as anybody else's at this point because the evidence is not clear. Bart Robinson, thank you very much for answering the question. Uh, thank you for your interest, Bart. Um, Joey TS, thank you for all the valuable insight. Thank you for your interest, Joey. And we're getting to the last comment. William Powell, age 74. CCS, I think you're saying uh, coronary calcium score, over 1,500, heart murmur, two heart valves, calcium buildup. You got some challenges, but um, I got, you're not alone, William. There's a lot of folks with very similar issues. And I didn't lie about last comment. I think this Peter Grant's comment was coming in when we wrote, running into a roadblock and the docs want to do angioplasty to check coronary arteries before doing a pacemaker. All non-invasive tests show no blockage and I have no chest pain. Well, uh, what can I say, Peter? Uh, if you haven't seen the first part of this video, please watch it. Uh, Cheek Tauga, thanks. Thank you so much, guys, for your interest and uh, look forward to seeing you in the next video.